What then shall we say? Is there unrighteousness with God? There's no injustice with God, is there? And that's the word unrighteousness. And he says, may it never be. And then he goes on to show how God is righteous in mercy and God is righteous in judgment. How can God show mercy to me? He sent his son to the cross for me, that's how. But God is also righteous in judging, judgment deserving sinners. And we need to remember that. We need to say it that way sometimes just to help us see it. And then he restates the principle, verse 16. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Welcome to Downtown Bible Class with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Today we continue on our study of the book of Romans. Pastor Scott brings part five of the message titled, A Righteous God and a Savior. We invite you to follow along with us now as we get started. Take your Bible and turn to Romans 9. As we come to God's Word, uh, what a privilege to know Him and to know Him as a righteous God and a Savior. As I said, I think a couple weeks ago, if all we knew of Him was that He was sovereign, and we know that, He does what He wants, He does what He pleases, nobody thwarts His purposes. If that's all we knew of Him, why, we maybe wouldn't rejoice, but the Scripture says... The sovereign, righteous God is a Savior, and we worship Him today for that. Now, we come to Romans 9, and I want to, uh, I want to show you once again the context. We want to not just jump in in the middle of this tightly packed argument of Romans. Romans 9 is right in the middle of Romans, and so in one sense... Uh, you got to keep all of Romans in your mind as you see what Paul is saying here. But let's remember that he has said that God is righteous, and he has in a righteous way provided salvation for we who had nothing to offer him but sin. We are utterly unrighteous, if you can put it that way. I mean, you know, he, he spent three chapters showing our unrighteousness, and then he marvel of marvels, declares us righteous. And we looked at it briefly last time, but we looked at it in detail when we went through it. Chapter 3 tells us that because Jesus Christ died in my place, God can be and is righteous even as He declares me righteous. He can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 26, what a statement. He is just, righteous, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me just uh, stop there and ask you, do you? Is that where your trust is? I'm not saying, oh, I believe in Jesus. I'm not saying, do you trust him when you have an illness and you pray to him? I'm saying, do you have faith in Christ? Is your trust in Him, the one who has faith in Jesus is justified. Now, chapter 9, Paul raises the question as he thinks about Israel, as he's explained for eight chapters the great truth of this salvation. He thinks of Israel. And look back, verse 1. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow 
and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. When Paul thought of Israel and how they had by and large rejected Christ as a nation, he had unceasing grief and great sorrow. His heart, look at chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Paul had a heart that was a Christ-like heart. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You remember what Jesus said? When he looked at Israel as he came into town, listen to his words. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Paul had a Christ-like heart, and Christ's heart says, Oh, Jerusalem, how often, Israel, I would have called you to myself like a hen gathers her chicks, but you were unwilling, obstinate, unbelief. Now, Paul says, has the word of God failed in chapter 9, verse 6? God made all these promises to Israel. Has the word of God failed? No. God's purpose was never to just save all of Israel, no matter who, just whoever's a physical descendant of Abraham. No, he picked out Abraham sovereignly. And then he chose not Ishmael, but Isaac, you remember, in verses 6 through 13 we saw. And not Esau, but Jacob. And he asserts, look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. For even though the twins were not yet born, you know, Esau and Jacob being twins, and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose, according to His choice, might stand not because of works, but because of Him who calls. God's sovereign choice of sinners upon whom He would have mercy. You see, and I underline it, Romans has taught us that if God left it up to man, no one would be saved. If God waited for man to seek Him, man doesn't. There are none righteous. There's none who seeks for God. So God sovereignly worked, not according to man's works, look at verse 11, but according to His own purpose and choice, according to Him who calls. Now, when that is asserted, we've seen immediately man, sinful man, raises objections. Some of them, I look at them kind of like a spectrum, really. Some of them are legitimate and honest questions. Many of them are arrogant and illegitimate, uh, wrong-minded, wrong-hearted questions. And I said last time, you can think of Paul as dealing with a heckler. You can think of uh, him dealing, he did a lot of open-air preaching, and as he proclaimed the gospel, there will always be those who, what about this? How can God, if you say God is such a God of love, then what about? And there's always that kind of tone. And when you deal with questions, any kind of teaching or preaching or just sharing personally with someone, questions have a way of uh, showing their color. 
Uh, sometimes they're more slippery than others as far as the deceptiveness, but you can see oftentimes, not just in the words, but in the tone of the question. And so these questions come up, and last time we saw, in the last two times, we've looked at verses 14 through 18. What then shall we say? Is there unrighteousness with God? There's no injustice with God, is there? And that's the word unrighteousness. And Paul brings these two words together, unrighteousness and God, and he says, may it never be. And then he goes on to show how God is righteous in mercy and God is righteous in judgment. And, you know, I've said it repeatedly, but I keep saying it because we need to hear it. And we don't hear it very well, particularly in our generation. We are so caught up with man. God is righteous when he shows mercy to judgment-deserving sinners. And the book of Romans is the explanation for how he can do that. How can God show mercy to me? He sent his son to the cross for me, that's how. But God is also righteous in judging judgment-deserving sinners. And we need to remember that. We need to say it that way sometimes just to help us see it. And then he restates the principle, verse 16, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. All are guilty. Remember that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even Moses, when he used Moses as an example, Moses wasn't heard because of any piety in Moses. Moses was an object of mercy, and he'd be the first one to tell you that. God's mercy and grace touched me. And Israel... We looked at it in verse 15. He goes back and cites the instance with Israel. What was Israel doing when God had mercy? Israel was, after all what God had done for them, Israel was making a golden calf and saying, this is your Lord. This is the God who brought you out of Egypt. Israel deserved judgment. God showed mercy. And it is God's glory, he told Moses. When Moses said, show me your glory, he said, Listen, I'll be merciful to whom I'll be merciful, and I'll have compassion to whom I'll have compassion. It is God's glory to save in grace, completely undeserved. His sovereign mercy, saving sinners who deserve judgment. So Israel is a great example, really, of mankind. Stubborn, obstinate, willful, going back to the golden calf type stuff. And yet God showing mercy. Well, then what about Pharaoh, verse 17? Well, Pharaoh, in his hardened, God-defying rebellion, he's a fairly good example too, isn't he? Remember we saw him when Moses came before him and he said, Thus says the Lord, let my people go. What did Pharaoh say? Who's the Lord? That I should obey his voice. What a picture of mankind today. We say, thus says the Lord, and people say, Well, who's the Lord? Was a Christian God. I don't believe in that one. I've got my own. Who's the Lord that I should obey His voice? We bring up His Word, and they say, that's just another book. I don't want to hear that. I like this book over here. And they go to man's words. Now, Pharaoh's a fairly good picture also of uh, mankind. Who's the Lord? I don't know the Lord. Remember he said, Exodus 5, 2, I don't know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. And we talked about it, and uh, you can see in Pharaoh a great picture of mankind. 
So whether you're looking at God's mercy, Israel, or God's judgment on Pharaoh, you've got a picture of what God has to work with when he shows mercy to some and he hardens some. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Objection, you know. You think of Romans as a courtroom drama. And as again, you can see these, how can you say that? This is what man does then in Paul's day. And it's still happening today, isn't it? I mean, even as I speak, and I'm sure today, there will be some who are sitting there saying, how can he say that? Listen, I'm not saying it. God said it. And your argument isn't with me, it's with God. But let me encourage you, you'll never win that argument. What you need to do is be still. You know, God is sovereign. I had no idea what Donna was going to sing this morning. But I said, Amen, when I heard those words. Be still. Be silent before the Lord. Let Him have His say. Well, objection. How can you say that? Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Now, Paul rebukes the question, and then he answers the question, you might say. And before I get into the the detail of it here, let me just say that, uh, you know, there are differences in questions. As I already commented, there's a difference even in tone in questions. And sometimes, quite often, and in fact here in Romans 9, in fact, Paul isn't saying that we can't ask questions. He's raising questions all the way through Romans. He's answering questions. But quite often... We need to listen to the question carefully, and we need to be careful how we ask the question. And quite often, we need to be like Moses. Take your sandals off. You're on holy ground. And Moses did what he was told. Or we need to be like Job of old, who said, I'll put my hand on my mouth. What have I said? After God finally, you know, 37 chapters unfold. Job going through suffering, real suffering, questioning God. And finally, in the 38th chapter, God says, listen, Job, where were you when I created the world? If you know so much. Because Job was going to straighten God out. And God humbled Job. And he says in chapter 40, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? And Job rightfully says, i got to put my hand on my mouth. I wish I wouldn't have said what I said. And he says in chapter 42, I spoke and I didn't know what I was talking about. And he puts himself in proper perspective and is greatly blessed by God. And I'll tell you, often we need to do just that. So there's differences in questions. And secondly, there's misunderstandings regarding God's choice, His sovereignty. Uh, there's probably more than this, but I'll give you two categories. 
that I often hear, and I think it's important to see this before we look at verse 20 and following as he answers this question and give us some uh, good background for it. First miscategory probably, or, you know, misinterpretation, first category of misinterpretation, there are many, even among well-meaning Christians, who think of God's choice as God just kind of looking down the line, down into the future of history, kind of like seeing a videotape ahead of time and seeing who is going to believe and then choosing that one. And uh, that, of course, is, is not the case. I mean, you look at Romans 9, and he is very clearly uh, said that's, that's not the case. That's to turn verse 16 on its head. That's to say it does depend on man who desires God or who runs and works and does what he should do. But the Scripture says it doesn't depend on the man who wills and the man who runs, but on God who sovereignly has mercy. And those who say such things haven't really understood Romans 9 as well as the objectioner, because the objection would never even come up if it was just God looking down and seeing who's good enough to be saved and then say, okay, I'll choose him because he was wise enough to believe in me. No, no. That's not the, the truth here at all that Paul is stating. And it w- the question, the objections wouldn't even arise if that's what Paul was teaching. Although a lot of people just kind of blindly hold on to that. It's a, the root, tap root of that, you know, is self-righteousness. Uh, but you step back from it and Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And every Christian instinctively, when asked, why did you believe in Christ? It's not, well, because I was wise enough to. If you're still talking that way, I question whether you know him. I mean it. No, if you really know Jesus Christ, you say, his mercy and grace got hold of me. I was blind. I was obstinate. I was, I know what I'm made of. But he melted me. He showed mercy on me. And you know, that first category, no matter what stripe it comes in, is a failure to really grasp the sinfulness of man. It's a misunderstanding and, a, and not an unwillingness often to really grasp how sinful man is. But secondly, another category of, of misunderstanding, a lot of people think of it as God looking at a mass of humanity, innocent humanity, and just kind of arbitrarily saying, I'm going to save those and condemn those. And again, that's not the case. And again, it's a misunderstanding of this teaching. It isn't God looking at a mass of innocent humanity and just arbitrarily saying, I'm going to save those and punish those. No, God is looking at sinful humanity. He's dealing with a race in rebellion, spitting at Him, hating Him. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who seeks for God. And again, I say this whole thought And the thoughts that often go with it are uh, a misunderstanding of how sinful man really is. There are those who think that God, uh, because He's sovereign and because He's the one who has mercy on some and hardens others, that He won't save those who want to be saved. Oh, He'll save anyone who wants to be saved. The problem is nobody wants to be saved. Nobody wants God. They're running from God. Who was it that sought Adam out in the garden? It wasn't Adam saying, oh, Lord, what did I do? Come to me. It was Adam hiding and God saying, where are you, Adam? He came to seek and to save the lost. God is the initiator of salvation. And I'll tell you, if God didn't initiate it, then no one 
would be saved. And God is under obligation to save no one. I mean, let's be very clear on that. You really grasp Romans 1, 18 through 3.20, and many of these questionings just melt away, just like that. The trouble is, we don't really want to grasp Romans 1, 18 through 3.20. And if you've been with us, I don't want to just throw stats around if you're visiting or if you're just joining, but I'm talking about the early part of Romans because Paul is arguing the case, and you're jumping into the middle, and I'm glad you're here, but I'd say go back and read the early part of Romans And uh, if we really get hold of that, and remember, Pharaoh is the picture of mankind, so is Israel for that matter, but we looked at it last time. Look back to chapter 1 and read Pharaoh in there again with me. Look at Romans 1 and listen, because the objection comes right as Paul says what he says about Pharaoh, and that he has mercy on whom he will, and he hardens whom he will. And so go back, and sometimes it's good to personalize this text, because he's talking about the whole race in Romans 1, verse 19. That which is known about God is evident within them. But I'm going to read Pharaoh there. Okay, let's just pick on Pharaoh for a minute uh, because he's a representative of, of sinful man. That which is known about God is evident within Pharaoh, for God made it evident to him. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that Pharaoh's without excuse... For even though he knew God, even though he said he didn't, he did. Even though he knew God, he didn't honor him as God or give thanks. But he became futile in his speculation, and his foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, he became a fool and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures and frogs and gnats, and the Nile River, and we talked about that. That's what false religion is. It's a turning away from the true God and a worshiping of the creature rather than the Creator. So what did Romans say? Verse 24, Therefore God gave Pharaoh over in the lust of his heart to impurity, that his body might be dishonored. And he exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave him over to degrading passions. And verse 24, 26, and 28, three times it says, God just let Pharaoh be Pharaoh, if you will. He gave him over to what he wanted. Pharaoh didn't want any part of God. I don't know God, and if I did, I will not let the people go. So God says, okay. He hardened Pharaoh. Sin is the punishment for sin. Now, this was well established in chapter 1, but he's applying it in some of its real depth here in chapter 9. And so I come back to it and say, God simply steps back and lets sinful man go his own way. He's dealing with sinful humanity, and he shows mercy on some, he rescues some, and he hardens others. He allows them to plunge on in to their own willful sin. You've been listening to Downtown Bible Class with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Please stay with us. Pastor Scott will return in just a moment with a preview of our next broadcast. Today's program was titled, A Righteous God and a Savior, a message from our series in the book of Romans. 
If you missed a portion of the message heard on the program today or you'd like to share it with a friend, head on over to downtownbible.org. A free copy of today's entire message is available there for you to stream or download at your convenience. We're thrilled to announce the publication of a new book written by Pastor Scott Gilchrist. It's called A Brief Exposition of Romans. It's a 266-page chapter-by-chapter commentary on Romans that we're sure will enhance your understanding of this critical book in the New Testament. The book is available online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and most other online booksellers. But during our study of Romans, we'd like to send you a copy as a thank you for a gift of any amount to the ministry of Downtown Bible. You can find us online at downtownbible.org or by mail at P.O. Box 19191, Portland, Oregon, 97280. We'd love to put this valuable resource in your hands. Downtown Bible only remains on the air through the generous contributions of listeners like you. We'd like to ask you to prayerfully consider partnering with us on a regular basis to help us meet our day-to-day expenses. Now, before we end our time today, let's go to Pastor Scott for a preview of our next broadcast. People think lightly of God's kindness and forbearance and assume that because God is patient and hasn't executed judgment yet, that He never will. Romans 2 verse 4, do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Don't think that way. His kindness, His patience is waiting for you to repent. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Oh, God is not willing that any should perish. Don't count His slowness as that slowness. Oh, no. God is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And He has His arms wide open. And history will be a display of the glory of God in His mercy and in His judgment. Join us again next time as we continue our series through the book of Romans. Pastor Scott will conclude the six-part message titled, A Righteous God and a Savior. Until then, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you.